What Would June Daly Watkins Do acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. We would also like to pay our respects to elders past, present and future. It's an old Shakespeare one. It's just a little snippet. To thine own self be true. And that was something that kind of punched me in the heart when I heard it. Does what we wear really matter? What about taking a call while we're at the checkout? Or neglecting to RSVP? In a rude modern world, what would June Daly Watkins do? While the Order of Australia recipient quite literally wrote the book on manners, we're asking what that legacy really means today. Your host, Jody Bashe-McLean, has had the privilege of working with the late June Daly Watkins for over 36 years. Now, Jody is picking up the baton with one key question. Is etiquette dead and buried, or does the modern world need Miss Daly's teachings now more than ever? In today's episode, best-selling author, speaker, and blogger Cynthia Morton tackles the Grace Tain controversy. In a show all about manners, we ask, can rudeness ever really be justified? Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. It's so lovely to have you with us today. And I just have to add that intro that we just uh, heard about you. They, they left one thing out. What's that? My dear friend. Because oh. you are. Because we've known each other. I was thinking about it this morning on my way here. It would have to be, it's close to 20 years. We were 10. We were. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I invited you to be part of this program because aside from admiring and respecting everything you are and what you do, I like the fact that sometimes I have a view on things in our conversations and you show me another alternative and another point of view, which I really respect and admire because sometimes I think too, especially in the space of, of what I do and being part of June Daly Watkins for so long, my learned behaviour is, is probably aligned to the values of June Daly Watkins and what we do. And sometimes I don't think outside that space. And I thought it'd be really interesting today to talk about a controversial issue, which I think it's really important that we need to unpack that and talk about that and how that aligns to modern manners today. So, as you know, each episode we kick off with asking the guests their favourite quote. And I think in the context of today's topic, the quote that you've chosen is very telling and I would love you to share that quote with us. Well, it's an old Shakespeare one. It's just a little snippet. I used to have it on my business card when I first started out. I remember that. Mm. odd years ago with a with a beautiful ring that had on it imprinted to thine own self be true and that was something that just really kind of punched me in the heart when I heard it and I didn't I think when I got clean and sober 26 years ago you know living a life of people pleasing and emotionally armored existence being true to yourself felt like a really scary and like uncharted terrain and and it's it's age-old wisdom and authenticity above popularity is a hard road to walk. But I think in this day and age, we're getting, we're more interested in people being real. You know, reality television has taken off in a way like no other, because I think we're interested in seeing people warts and all and learning. And yeah, so to thine own self be true. I mean, I've, I've been studying philosophy over the last couple of years. And what I find fascinating about great philosophy 
and wisdom over the, the centuries is that some things just never go out of date. And mm. I think that little line to thine own self be true is a really, well, for me, a benchmark to measure my own behaviour by. Yeah, I think that resonates with a lot of us too, that I think when I first received your business card, when you gave it to me and I read that and, and I started to unpack that and how it relates to me, I think we all can read that quote and refer it back to our lives and our experiences and, and maybe hopefully practice mm. that thought. So you've shown us or, or explained to us how it resonates with you. Take me and take the listener on a, a step further and tell us about you and the work that you do because that I think that's also very important that it aligns with your quote. Well, I got clean and sober. I'm a recovering drug addict alcoholic. I'm turning 60 this year. I got clean and sober when I was 33. And my books were a byproduct of lived experience, just rehashing lots of things I learned through, you know, I had chronic post-traumatic stress. So I had to have some therapy and just reading and not being very emotionally literate. I started to, you know, my, my books became top 10 bestsellers. And I think the reason I wanted to just talk a little bit about Grace Tame today is because I think she's a very important uh, milestone in understanding. And I was taken back and very sad when I saw her being upset on that day where she handed over her Australian of the Year award. And, and you know, that her scowl has been something that I think has been misunderstood and she's been very vilified for. Now, I, I was lucky enough to receive an Australian of the Year award back in 2005. Mine wasn't the national award like Grace's, but it was a state award. And I was really saddened. And that was 16 years before Grace. And when I won that award, and I was delighted to win it, much to my surprise, I find it really interesting, you know, it wasn't a, a social media time. There was no hashtag back in 2005. And I love the hashtag that Grace used, let her speak. And I won that award, unbeknownst to me, I was nominated by a group of rebellious girls at a boarding school. And I'd been asked to run a series of emotional fitness workshops and my work sits under the banner of emotional fitness because the headmistress at the school had heard me do a talk at International Women's Day and she spoke to some of the school counsellors about some of the concepts I was talking about and they said, why don't you get this woman in to chat to the girls because we're not reaching them and they won't come to counselling. And so I was delighted to be invited and I wrote a 12-week program similar to the one you, you, know, you and I did with Steve, but tailored to young females on emotional literacy, sitting with emotions, understanding emotions. I got six weeks into that series and the headmistress rang me so apologetically and said I couldn't no longer continue. Now, I'm a mother of sons. And so for me, sitting with these girls at this boarding school, I mean, deliciously naughty girls. I mean, the girls that were climbing out of windows and sniffing deodorant cans and shagging boys and doing drinking and doing all the things that young ladies weren't supposed to be doing. These girls would huddle around like little chickens, you know, at nine o'clock at night after study hour, and I would get to talk to them. And it was, it was like story time for teenagers. It was beautiful. But I was kind of sacked because the headmistress said that some of the mothers had heard that this uneducated, lived experience woman who was a recovering drug addict, alcoholic, trauma survivor was talking to their daughters and they didn't want that happening. Now, as a mother, I understood their concerns. I understood that. But the saddest thing for me was I was not allowed to go and say goodbye to the girls. I just didn't show up the next Wednesday night. Those girls were furious and they said to the headmistress, what can we do? This isn't right. And the headmistress said to them, well, we could, the Australian of the Year Awards are being nominated. We could write away. So I don't know what those girls wrote, but 
I won the state award under Local Hero. And I had a very different experience, albeit it wasn't a national award. But what I found was I was championed by our government. I was given funds by the Department of Health and Ageing to open a drop-in centre. We had corporates, we had street kids, we had sex workers, we had homeless people coming to our centre. It was a wonderful time. I also was then nominated with the Prime Minister's Award of Excellence in Drug and Alcohol Endeavours and a Pride of Australia medal. So my, even though it wasn't a very well publicised time because there was no social media, it was a beautiful experience and I was supported and championed and I found 16 years later watching, I was delighted when she won it. I thought, this is so exciting that we're having a conversation again. Australian of the Year is a trauma survivor. But what I was so saddened for, and you know, to encapsulate the whole to thine own self be true, what I found very sad that she was vilified. She was very honest about leaning into drugs after her trauma. She was very honest about her experience. And look, we can unpack it a bit, a bit later, but I think there is a time and place for manners and there is a time and place for sensitivity, and there is a time and place where putting politeness over authenticity is rude in and of itself. Mm. And so I want to talk about that a little bit more. So that's my background. That was, you know, when you sort of said you wanted to talk about manners, I suppose I'm interested in talking about, and I know, you know, I met Miss Daly with you. We went for dinner. I have never met a more eloquent lady-like woman who I tried to mimic the way she would sit because she was just just a library of etiquette. And I think there's great wisdom in that. And I think some of her manners and her etiquette will be timeless. But I think there are other resource libraries around emotional etiquette, mm. around humanitarian etiquette. And there is always a time where we must put humanity above etiquette. And those times are when people are traumatised. Those times are when people have disabilities. Those times are when people are grieving, when people are in a great deal of pain. We do not look at them and judge them as being rude when those things are happening in a human being's life. And I think it's important for us to know when to put authenticity above what's popular and easy and, and support people when they need emotional support. And I think Grace Tame really did she was thrust into a world of reliving her trauma on a daily basis, every day. She was a young woman in her 20s. When I won it, I was in my 40s and had 10 years of therapy. I think there was a lot asked of her and she was misunderstood and vilified. So yeah, that's my whole lens for wanting to chat to you today. Mm. And look, you raised some really interesting and, and hugely important points in what you're saying. And I, to be authentic myself, when I first saw her behaviour, I guess, you know, the extravagant side eye and she was clearly unhappy and making a point. My first thought, and this I have unpacked with myself, that comes from my learned behaviour with Miss Daly. And I know Miss Daly would have thought, oh, that she shouldn't have done that. She should have just smiled and got on with the job at hand in that respect. But I also spoke to other people, my sons, I am stepmom to two and mum to one, and they had a different reaction and a different lens, as you said before. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I think also too, it created a great platform for her. And that's not a bad thing because it became a discussion about you know, what she did, was it right, was it not right, and the reasons behind that. And I think 
what you've said today has sort of reinforced my thoughts even, even more so that that there are different circumstances to when one has to like in the era of Miss Daly in the 30s, 40s and 50s and 60s that you just smiled and you got on with it even though it was not authentic to who you were and you felt uncomfortable with it. So I sort of want to explore something a little bit further with that. Do you think as a society we are conditioning ourselves to pretend that everything is okay? Or for fear of being rude? You know, I had a, I thought of an acronym for fear of appearing rude. Yeah. And we do that at the expense of our own feelings. So we would rather save face and, and not appear rude. And um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think it I think it depends on who you talk to. And I, I, I'm really excited to be watching a bit like you. My boys are, are 36 and 34 and their, you know, their wives and partners are fascinating. This generation asks more questions. And I think we misuse, us boomers misuse the word entitlement when we're talking about the younger generation because I think they have the audacity to be real. Mm. And we were taught to put a smile on and be a young lady. In our generation, Jodie, you and I were thought that. And again, I think it's important for us to keep learning as we get older. And being a lady and smiling, which is what Miss Daly did so, so beautifully, and, and as I said, there's a time and a place for that, is one element of being a female. But I think, I mean, I love words. And the word lady is often linked to being polite and making people comfortable and social etiquette. And again, there is nothing right or wrong with that. It's a wonderful skill set to have. But I think as females, we are multifaceted. And you and I both know, I mean, one of the things I love about you is that you come from a totally different world. You're the best person to sit at a dinner with because I know which fork to use. I know what, you know, I mean, you've got skill mm -hmm. sets from a world that I, I haven't. But I think if we're wanting to be well-rounded women, no matter what our age are, and, and not let's, let's even take gender out of it. If we're wanting to be gentle men and gentle women, if we're wanting to have manners, that's great. But we've also got to be emotionally educated when and not blinkered because there is a time and place to get the job done and soldier on. And I, you know, I just wanted to add this, this is a little sidebar because you sort of said, you know, do you think as a society we're conditioned to? I think elements are. I do a lot of work with soldiers and I've done, I've worked in Gallipoli Barracks. But one of the common themes I see, whether I'm one client just a couple of days ago, he's from the SAS and he has got a lot of chronic post-traumatic stress, but he mirrors words that I hear from clients of mine that are surgeons, clients of mine that are academics, that are pilots and elite sportsmen. And they have a very blinkered approach. And in a way, I think that social etiquette and manners has a very blinkered approach in as much as there are times where you've just got to get the job done. So, for example, what he said to me was, Cynthia, you know, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this emotional fitness stuff because you want me to deal with my feelings. And I've been trained as a soldier that my emotions are like a horse and I am the rider and I must at all times be in command of my emotions. And I said to him, that's a great skill set to have. We all need to be able to do that. We all need to put the blinkers on and get the jobs done. And I think in a way that's what manners are saying. You know, get the job done, be polite, be courteous and do your best. However, not in every situation because we're not robots. So what I said to him and, and I see it with surgeons, you know, soldiers, surgeons and pilots are playing God 
We want that pilot landing the plane. If he's in a fight with his wife in the morning, we want him to leave his emotions at the door. We want him to land that plane and be blinkered and be single focused and get the job done. We want him to ride his emotions like a horse and get us to the end result. Same with the surgeon, same with our favorite football team. We want them to win the goal. Now, what I said to this soldier was, you don't need my help with being armored and harnessing your emotions. What you need my help with is getting off of that damn horse because you can't live on a horse and you can't flog a horse. And so many of my clients that are doaholics, that are brilliant in what I call the kingdom, the external world, are emotionally bankrupt at home. Mm. And this is what manners can do to you if you always are on that horse of manners, but you never get off. If we use the metaphor of this beautiful horse being our feminine energy, our manners, you know, our emotions, we've got to be able to feel anger, jealousy, sadness, grief, betrayal, all of those things. You've got to be able to feel them freely. You can't always keep them bridled. And people that flog themselves, never get off the horse, always have the blinkers on, burn out, they don't heal and they just don't fare well in life and they live emotionally bankrupt. Mm. And so what I saw when I saw Grace scowling was a young woman who had been re-traumatized all over again. We've got to remember that she was violated for years by a man in a position of authority that told her to be quiet and not threaten his image. And for me, you know, as a young little girl who was also violated, who had to sit on a pedophile's lap, who would, who'd violated me for nine years and got told off if I scowled and didn't smile, I looked at her and my heart went out to her. Because unlike me, when I won my award, the government got behind me and just rallied behind me. Mine was a small award. I would have thought with her big national award, they would have come swooping in and helped her and championed her and supported her, but she didn't have that. She was phoned up and told to smile and make people in position of power look good mm. when they hadn't delivered. They hadn't helped her. And we've got to remember too, if we're going to be authentic women, if we're going to be authentic human beings, let's take gender out of it. We need to understand that when a person is wounded, they can't always soldier on. And she had done a year of being diminished, of having a person in a position of power not support her, and she was supposed to smile and say, thank you very much for that. Now, that is not okay. You and I know that. And I think one of the things that we can do is when we look at somebody with manners and decide they're rude and they're not being polite... I always say to people, get curious, not furious. Mm. They have a backstory. And sometimes it's important to unpack the backstory rather than just judging them in that stage. We look at nature. There are times when women need to get angry. You know, there are times when we need to yell and we need to show emotion. And if we want to be authentic people, we've got to be able to do that and to be supported to do that. There's a time and place. And I honestly feel that was a time and place for her to let us know this was not a good experience for her. Mm. She was not championed. And she let us know. Mm. She was authentic, wasn't she? She was being authentic. So if you're in a spot, so one of our listeners is thinking that they're in a spot, they want to express their the concern or dislike or disapproval. How do they do that without offending? Is that even possible? 
is there a, a way that you can express your dislike or concern about a situation without offending someone? Absolutely. And that that's called calm assertion. And I think we all strive to do that. I, I, I use that a lot. I heard you speak somewhere few years ago. Those two words are magnificent. They yeah. really are. They explain so much. Well, you know, we don't want to be aggressive. If somebody's crossed a boundary and we need to let them know, in an ideal situation, we would be calmly assertive. We wouldn't be aggressive or submissive. We would stand up and speak up. However, we've got to understand that if a person has a disability, if a person has been traumatized, if a person has a disease, you know, if they're struggling cancer, if they've got, they're nurturing somebody at home, if they have just buried their child, if they're struggling in some shape or form, they're not going to be able to deliver calm assertion and nor would we expect them to. You and I, when we had our babies and we were, I don't know about you, but I was wailing in the, you know, the delivery room. Nobody goes up to a woman birthing a child and asks her to be polite and pipe down. (laughs) We look at mother nature, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Marian Williamson, she tells a great story about mother nature in the wild. You know, nobody goes up to a mother lioness who's devouring a predator that's getting near her young and goes, oh my God, she's got anger issues. She needs some therapy. Nobody does that. And, you know, for us as women, it's unhealthy to not show our anger and our disdain when we have our sexual boundaries violated, when we are diminished you know, when we are treated with disrespect, there is a line. And I always say when people say, oh, she's got anger issues, I'll go, well, you know, maybe they need to be addressed. Maybe they're validated. Anger is like a horn in a car. You know, we don't sell a car without a horn because there are idiots that will cross boundaries and threaten your life. Now, when a person feels like they are being emotionally threatened, physically threatened, financially threatened, they get angry. Grace was angry. That was an appropriate response. Being calm and assertive in a general everyday life is what we all aspire to. Mm. But there are times you break into my home, you touch my children, I'm going to turn Mother Tiger on you Mm. and I'm not going to apologize. Mm. So there are exceptions to the rule. There are exceptions for when, of course, we all want to try and be our best self. But I think given the pressure that young woman was under, she was vilified. We didn't take time to look at the backstory. And a lot of people, and again, I'm not interested in vilifying the people that vilified her. Mm, mm. People don't know what they don't know. You know, and when you understand the backstory, when you understand chronic post-traumatic stress, when you understand, you know, when people, you touch a wound, you know, trauma is like a Molotov cocktail going off in the heart. It changes the brain and people have different responses. And until they can get enough therapy and start to heal, they need to be supported, not vilified. Absolutely. I believe that etiquette is, it sort of starts with being kind to yourself. That's my thoughts Mm. on on what etiquette is, meeting your own needs, not just everyone else's, which means we need to find a way to assert ourselves, like you said, calm assertion, which two of my favourite words, I must say. So that brings me to the word no. And that little word can be a big problem for many, many people. In my experience, it's common, for example, to say yes to an invitation to an event instead of declining, then make excuses and fail to show up. So people are saying yes when they really mean no. Do you think that we are conditioned to the fact that saying no is rude? So would we rather say yes because if we say no for fear of the person thinking we're rude. 
What are your thoughts? Well, and again, I think it depends on the depth of, of the relationship. One of the most important things about owning your yes, owning your no, and owning your can I get back to you is that when you're authentic, people know you're not going to people please them. I think there is a an element, especially in social circles, where, you know, keeping up appearances, again, it's people pleasing is more important than authenticity. And there are certain people that actually want you just to stay to their script, do the things that they want you to do, go to the things that they want you to go to, wear the things that they want you to wear, have the conversations and agree. And, and if you don't, you're shunned. And those kind of clicks, they are not, well, certainly you and I, you know, as we've ventured through the years together, I think the older you get, the more you give yourself permission to say no. I mean, these days, you know, I've spoken about, you know, JOMO, the joy of missing out. My God, it's lovely to be at home in your pajamas rather than <laughs> air kissing people, you, you know, that you know that just get more boring the piss they get. You know? Hallelujah. So, yeah. I do love, what, what did you say? JOMO. JOMO, the joy of missing out. Joy Different to FOMO. Oh, I love that. Sitting <laughs> <laughs> so at home in your pajamas thinking, for many of us, we get our lifetime to master being authentic. Mm. Who I am at 60, I much prefer this woman than who I was at 50. But at 50, I was doing the best I could do. And you learn as you go. Mm. And I think there's great freedom. You and I will, you know, if we've said we want to do something, one of our kids are sick or we're, you know, we're just not up to it, we'll just say, look, I haven't got the fuel in the tank. And that that is the beauty of an authentic relationship. And I think most people most people are generally pleased when you're honest with them because they know they can rely on you to tell them the truth. Mm. And when you people please some somebody, you're basically, you know, in a false relationship. And that is a owning your nose. But one thing I would say to people that have trouble setting boundaries is is just insert into your dialogue the 24-hour look, can I get back to you? Let me think on it. And that just buys you some it time. It does, doesn't it? Yes. If you feel put on the spot. Mm. There's another word that I think is also a problem that we have in in, in society is the word sorry. Mm. Uh, I think we overuse it. We do an exercise with our business students, but particularly the ones that we, we have a program for receptionists and we're training them to be the best receptionists you could ever have. And they've given this exercise where they have to remove the word sorry from their vocabulary and they have to answer a telephone. So it's it's a sort of a role play. And uh, the phone rings and they answer the phone with the name of the company and introducing themselves. And the caller is asking to speak with someone who's not there. So they have to manage that call without saying, which is probably a place where we all go to, we say, oh, sorry, they're not available at the moment. So they're not allowed to use the word sorry. And it's interesting. It's quite a challenge. Mm. And they really have to search for, for other words and still sound helpful and there to assist. So what do you think that our sorry habits say about us in this world that we live in today? Why is it a, a first point of reply when someone ask us something and perhaps the answer that we give them isn't going to be the answer that they accept. So, can you come to lunch today? Oh, sorry, is the first thing we say. So, why do we rely on this word so much, do you think? I suppose I'm reluctant to use broad brush strokes because mm. it's not, it's probably a word that I try not to use and I think there is a mindset of people and I think again, if why, you... Why do you not try not to use it? I'd because be with, I only use it if I'm sorry. Yes. So there's something, a wrong has, has occurred and you would use it in its context of saying, I apologise. 
So essentially, that's what we're saying. I, are we being too polite in that we're using this word so much because we want to apologise all the time? It depends how you've been emotionally educated. Mm-hmm. When I work with some women on the land, don't always hear that. Mm. I think it depends on where you're educated. It depends on your emotional literacy. It depends on your sense of self. And I think it's a priceless thing you're teaching young women and young men because confidence comes from backing yourself to be of service. And if you can't be of service, be kind and as helpful as you can. And, and sorry doesn't belong in amongst that. So, I, you know, I really commend you for getting people to weed that out because there would be, I think broad brush strokes are dangerous because there are, I think, you know, over the last 20 years of my private practice, I've worked with people from all walks of life. And one of the things I've come across is the golden rule is there's no golden rule. Different people have different levels of emotional literacy and different levels of self-confidence. And there are some words that some people will use in the right place. And there are some words that other people will use, as you sort of said, as a form of people-pleasing, saying sorry a lot is a form of people-pleasing. And generally speaking, you'll probably find people that do that, they're people-pleasing because they need to keep the peace. Mm. And if they've grown up in an emotional war zone, and an, an emotional war zone can also be a home where maybe people didn't yell, but people didn't connect. And if they said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, they would be vilified or ostracized. So they are walking on eggshells with the human race. Mm. And sometimes people don't know that until you point it out. So I think it's that's a really important thing in emotional etiquette to not apologize for your existence. I think that's a very significant <laughs> thought process that you've just explained there because I do believe that we overuse the word. And, and sometimes when someone does say sorry, it doesn't have the impact that it should no. because it's it's used so much. Mm. Now, I want to chat about something very exciting that's happening in your life. You, and I love this term, you use this often, this will be your seventh time, you are about to birth a new book. Yep, new book child. New yeah. book child, which I believe tackles some of the issues that um, lie under those self-defeating habits like struggling to say no, perpetually apologising. Mm. And I'd love the, to know, and I'm sure the listeners would love to know, a little bit more about this book and if you can share with us. I know Is it Secret Squirrel? I'm not quite sure whether you can sort of share with us the book and, and what it's about and when we can expect to get our hands on it. Well, it's in editing at the moment, so it's like it's in Swiss finishing school because... Uh, oh, there you go, yes. the June Daly Watkins it's in, school. Yes, it's, you know, <laughs> one of the lovely things about writing is that when you send it to an editor and at the moment uh, with my other six books, they come back, you know, like when your car's been detailed, you just think, oh, my God, you know, so when your house has been styled or cleaned. So it's, it's in editing at the moment. Uh, I'm looking at an international publishing house, but I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm still in discussions and a few other things. But I think in my 60th year, I haven't written a book since 2017, and I, this one's been percolating for a while. And as you know, you and I, we went to Hamilton Island with our hubbies and we came home in January and we had COVID. And I was sitting on my bum for two weeks and I just thought, well, I might start tinkering. So, And I've started the chapter outline for this book at least half a dozen times over the last three or four years, but I just kept going and it just it just came. So it was birthed in COVID. But it's very much around what we've been talking about today, you know, incorporating the inner and the outer world, your kingdom, which is the world that you live in. We all have to build a kingdom and the mystics will call that 
the masculine energy. Freud called it the shell on the sea turtle. Our outer world, which is what we need social etiquette and manners for, integrating that with our inner world. Because what I often find is when clients come to work with me, they're either really great in one or the other. Mm. So they're great in what I call the masculine. They roll up in my drive in a Bentley and they've got, you know, more money than God and they're, they're very successful. They're emotionally bankrupt though. They're, you know, that saying some people are so poor, all they have is money. And if you stay on that horse and you stay blinkered, you can climb and build a magnificent kingdom, but you'll probably come home alone because when you're blinkered like that, you have to be insensitive to get the job done. And many surgeons become, you know, people talk about their bedside manner. They have to be blinkered. They, they can't afford to let their emotions get in the way, but they don't turn them on when they come home. They don't take that emotional armor off. They don't take the blinkers off. And then I have other people that come that they can meditate until they levitate. They are Zen masters. They've done every retreat on the planet. They've read every self-help book. They can't set a boundary. They're namasteing everybody and they can't resolve conflict or pay a bill. <laughs> and I so, know a few people like yeah, that. Yeah, so they're looping. And, mm. and, you know, as I say to them, namasteing is a wonderful thing to do, but we have jails for a reason. You need to have boundaries. Brene Brown talks about if you want to live a big life, she uses big as an acronym. Boundaries, integrity, generosity. So many people that are very right-brained put generosity first. They're giving everything away. They're saying yes to everybody. They're people-pleasing. You know, they're namasteing everybody. They get exploited and they, you know, they wonder why they're in one-way relationships. And then we've got people on the other side of the coin that are building empires, but they're feeling exhausted, unappreciated and consistently fatigued. So this latest offering is very much around, and look, I'm going to use as a beautiful Canadian writer called Jeff Brown. You and I both know him. And he, his latest book called Articulations is one of my recovery Bibles. And so I'm going to borrow his word for a moment here. Articulating is when we head, heart and body in my realm, the way I use this with my work, is when we are our best selves. So we are boundaried and sensitive. We are not just articulating, not just speaking from the head, but we are speaking from lived experience as well. So the book's very much about building the bridge between the two so you are the whole package because you and I being boomers as we are we were brought up by tradi traditionalists that you know when you married somebody or partnered with somebody they were your better half you know you do left brain they do right brain you provide and protect they nest and nurture they're your better half and those relationships don't work because it, people live half-heartedly and are codependent so this book's very much around the work that I do with helping people emotionally connect. And I love that figure eight, which is the infinity symbol turned on its side, where many of my clients that are doaholics and workaholics and say, Cynthia, you need to give me some tools. I need to know what I need to do on school holidays to connect with, connect with my kids because I won't do anything with me. They just want to chill at home. And I say, well, one of the most important things that you'll probably need to do is do less to emotionally connect. Mm, Little yes. exercises I give them are things like, you know, and this is what I've written about in the book, you know, when your children hug you, are you the last to let go? Make sure you are. When anybody that loves you hugs you, that you are the last to let go because the heart needs to dock. And as Jeff Brown talks about the articulations, I think that book inspired me to really thread a lot of the things that I talk to my clients about that have said over the last five years, oh my God, is that in a book? You've got to put that in a book. So it's a collation of all of that and just helping people bring head, heart and body online so that they're, they're not tilting. It's great to be able to be left brain. It's great to be able to be right brain, but it's great to be able to freely move between the two. 
to articulate, articulate, and then to not sign your body up for things that you're emotionally fatigued or you know you just haven't got the intellectual bandwidth for. So that's kind of what it's about. I haven't got a release date yet because it's not out of finishing school, and once it is, I'm I'm going to try and see if we talk to a few international houses and. I'm looking at late this year, early next year, but I've, I've, after here I'm going to another meeting, you know, that's very excited about some of the content and I don't know how that's going to pan out, so I'm interested to see what they're keen to do. But I will keep you posted, that's oh, for sure. Oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Cynthia, thank you. It has been a delight. And just to to hear you speak, I get lost in your voice and your words because you have so much... I think you, you've said this often yourself, it's common sense in a way that the thoughts and processes that you have, that you take, you know, you often say that you're not university educated, but you are so wise because you have an approach that is real and I think people really connect with you and understand when you share your thoughts and your your advice. I think people feel very comfortable with you and and this has been a great conversation and I've just enjoyed listening to you and and also respecting your thoughts and opinions because I think that as a society we need to do that. We need, as you said, we need to respect different opinions to the ones that we have. Yeah. I really do. Thank you again. Oh, I love you, darling, and and it's just been lovely to sit here and look at you and (laughs) and have time and thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I think it's important. I have a very robust and diverse library of what not to do. Mm. And I love to be useful in that way. And I love learning from you. I love knowing, you know, when we did that series of workshops together, just learning, you know, the importance of etiquette and the finer things in life. And I'm loving hearing what you're doing with your business. I always learn from you as well. And that's why I love you so much. And I will come anytime and chit chat. And lucky I didn't have that second cup of coffee. I haven't shut up. It's been a pleasure. I love you, darling. Love you too. Thanks for joining us on What Would June Daly Watkins Do? Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode.